Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I work through five different value metrics that measure the cheapness of a stock. From the price to book ratio to price to earnings, price to sales, price to cash flow, and enterprise value to EBITDA, we talk about each one, its strengths and weaknesses, and where the denominator comes from, i.e. the balance sheet, income statement, or cash flow statement. And we quickly highlight the models on Validia that utilize these metrics. If you'd like to check out the models and strategies on Validia that incorporate these ratios as part of their investment criteria, head over to validia.com trial and get seven days free access to all the tools and research on Validia. That's V-A-L-I-D-E-A dot com slash T-R-I-A-L. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Okay, today we're going to spend some time talking about some of the more popular valuation ratios or metrics that are used in many of the strategies that we run on Validia. And I wrote an article a few weeks ago where I kind of tried to look at these, these, these ratios. I tried to define what they were, talk about their strengths and weaknesses, and then also um, highlight what models on Validia utilize each one of these different valuation metrics, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, one of the things, Jack, that you and I were talking about right before we started is, you know, these um, ratios, something like the PE ratio or price to book, you know, it's not like it's the only criteria used in, the, in, in any of our models. A, a lot of times our models are using, if it's a value model, they tend to use one or even maybe many of these metrics as a core valuation um, screen. And then, you know, it's coupled with other quality or other types of fundamental measures to try to uncover stocks that look good according to the strategy. So, you know, while we're going to talk about these ratios like in isolation, they're never really used in isolation within the Validia system. They're always used in the context of, you know, being combined with other uh, measures or value metrics. And that, that's true of all the, you know, the good value managers we know as well. I mean, there, there's no value managers out there that are just saying, you know, let's select stocks that are cheap based on, you know, one or more of these metrics and let's not care at all about what's going on at the company. Let's just buy, you know, stocks because they're cheap. Everybody has some degree of, of something they're overlaying on top of that. All of our strategies do and, you know, all the good managers out there that we know do too. So, you know, when we talk about these valuation ratios, it's important to understand that these are not, these don't exist on an island. These are sort of a starting point for finding cheap companies and then typically a variety of other things are done on top of that. Yeah, and by the way, our podcast with Rafael Resendez, you know, he he kind of made the point that, you know, these measures don't get at intrinsic value at all. They don't measure like what a company is worth. What they're really measuring is degrees of cheapness, depending on, you know, what you're looking at, balance sheet, income statement, or maybe, you know, cash flow. So it's just important to realize that these metrics are, you know, not when we use the word value, you can define value in a lot of different ways. He defines value as trying to buy companies for less than their intrinsic value. When we're talking value, we're talking, you know, trying to find companies that are cheap based on their assets, based on their earnings, based on their cash flow or something like that. 
Yeah, these, these are shorthand ways to try to find cheap companies, you know, and he, and he would argue you should probably take all of these and throw them in the garbage because they don't, you know, they don't get at what a company's actually worth. And, you know, he has a system for trying to calculate what a company's actually worth. The, these are shorthand ways to find stocks that are cheap. You know, and they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that academic research has shown that these stocks that are statistically cheap over time produce an excess return over the market. But he's right in that, you know, these are not saying, you know, we're not trying to get at what the the actual intrinsic value of a company is, and that, that's what a system like his tries to do. So the first metric that we wanted to um, talk through is probably the one that's used most widely in the academic world, which is price to book. So it's price per share over book equity per share. And remember book uh, value or book equity is just, it comes really from the balance sheet, which is assets minus liabilities um, equals the equity value. And so Jack, I know we wanted to just kind of get into what some of the pros and the cons of each of these are. So for book value, um, what are the pros and cons? Well, first of all, book value is interesting because book value is simultaneously two different things. It's one, the most hated ratio in value investing, and it's two, the most used ratio in value investing, which is a little bit weird. But if you know, when like Eric Balchunas looked at ETFs and which ratios they use, almost every value ETF, you know, save a few, like our, our friend Wes Gray at Alpha Architects doesn't, but the vast majority of them either used just book value or used book value as part of a part as part of what they're doing. So this is a ratio that's really, really widely used. And one of the reasons for that is, is I guess, one of the pros of it, which is that it's, it's also the most used ratio in academic research. Um, so if you look at Fama French's work, or you look at a lot of the work that's been done around value has been done using the price to book ratio. And one of the other positives is, is the reason that they did that, which is price to book is not a flow-based measure like all the other ones we're going to talk about. You know, earnings or cash flow, those are all flows. Price to book is a stock measure. And so what happens is because of that, price to book is not as volatile or it doesn't, it doesn't change as much as those other ratios. And so when you use it in a portfolio, building a value portfolio, you end up having lower turnover. Earnings and cash flows and sales, those types of things change a lot more than book value. And so if you want a low turnover value strategy, one of the advantages of price to book is it will produce a lower turnover strategy than the, than the other um, the, the other metrics. Now, in terms of cons, we could probably go on all day since everybody tends to hate price to book these days. I mean, it doesn't take into account the value of intangible assets. Um, you know, assets on the balance sheet are typically held at the, you know, they're held at their book value, not their market value. And that can change over time. Um, it doesn't look at whether a company's profitable. It doesn't look at whether it's sales. It doesn't look at anything other than, you know, just its book value. So th there's a lot of drawbacks, which we've covered in other episodes of price to book. Um, but it, it definitely on balance, most value investors probably consider price to book the least successful of the of the value ratios yeah, and in terms of the models on validity that use price to book there's the piotrowski strategy which is um it's he, he developed a model called uh, the the f score which basically says first start out by identifying the lowest 20 percent of stocks using price to book so you're really trying to identify these cheap companies in the market and then he applied a series of accounting tests to try to find companies that were improving their financials and fundamentals and then the Dremen strategy also uses price to book as one of the four different valuation criteria. And then lastly, with Graham, um, it, he kind of takes price to book and multiplies it by the PE ratio and wants to see the, um, the, the result of that uh, be uh, less than a certain number. So price to book is utilized um, in there for that. The next one um, is the PE ratio. This is probably the one that most investors are familiar with when you're talking about the PE multiple of um, a company. You, what, what you're doing is you're taking the price of the stock and you're dividing it by earnings per share. So if a company is trading at $20 a share 
and they're earning $2 um, a year in earnings. The PE is 10. It's basically 20 divided by two. And so you, um, you know, here, this utilized a lot when talking about the multiples of companies or the multiples of the market. And in terms of, um, I know Jack, one of the things that we kind of think about sometimes when we're, when we're looking at the PE ratio is it seems very simple on the surface, but you know, that earnings number can be derived in many different ways. Yeah, well, if you if you contrast with this with price to book, price to book has two variables, price and book, and, and neither one of them is really something you can interpret. They they're both just are what they are. When you get into price to earnings, that denominator becomes somewhat of an issue because what are earnings? I mean, earnings could be trailing twelve month earnings. Earnings could be projected analyst earning you know estimates for earnings in the future. It, earnings could be some sort of average of earnings over a period of time. So you, you run into a little bit more of interpretation with price to earnings. And when you see PE on different websites, you'll see different PEs for the same company sometimes because of these, these differences. But in, in terms of getting into the pros and cons, the pros are basically what you talked about, which is PE is very simple to understand, you know, the price divided by what the company makes. Um, also, now we're getting at earnings. And so now we're actually getting at profitability and it's, it, profitability ultimately is very important for the value of a company. So it, it's important to look at the price relative to, you know, some, some sort of profitability metric if you want to find out what the company is worth. Um, in terms of the, the cons, um, earnings can be subject to manipulation. So when we're talking about earnings, we're not talking about cash flows. We're not talking about the cash the company generates. We're talking about accounting rules as to how things have to be realized. And, and that leads to an accounting measure of earnings, but that companies can play and manipulate with that. that. So sometimes that doesn't get at the true, you know, business and how well it's doing. And, and a good example of that are some of these, you know, companies like Amazon that haven't been making money on standard earnings for a long time. But when you sort of look behind the scenes, they've actually been doing quite well. And so, you know, a PE ratio may not have done a very good job of evaluating Amazon. So that, that's an example of maybe a con of the PE ratio. Yeah, and one of the other, I guess, downsides uh, of using the PE is with some of these cyclical stocks. Like, you know, like we knew when energy got, when oil got, you know, went from whatever it was down to, you know, $25 a barrel and oil like energy stocks looked super cheap based on their trailing um, 12 month earnings, but they actually weren't because the future earnings were gonna be dramatically impacted by the falling price of oil. So, you know, you can get kind of fooled sometimes with low PE stocks in these cyclical um, in these cyclical companies as well. Yeah, you end up you end up almost wanting to buy at the peak of the economy effectively because that's when the cyclicals earnings are the most and that's when they look the cheapest and a lot of times that's when you don't want to buy them. So that, that's a very good point. Yeah, and, and then strategies on validity that use the PE, there's Graham's value investor model. Uh, Peter Lynch's uh, model uses it and he uses it in the context of the peg ratio. Um, John Neff, David Dremen, and Jim O'Shaughnessy's value composite model all also use the price to earnings ratio. Okay, moving on to um, price to sales. The price to sales measures the price relative to its a company's sales per share. This is another um, metric that is derived from the income statement because revenue and sales falls on the income, income statement. In terms of strengths and weaknesses, Jack, do you want to kind of just work your way through those? Yeah, this, this is a pretty straightforward one. Um, you know, sales is not the, the advantage of price to sales, I'd say, is it's not subject to manipulation. So we talked about our earnings can be manipulated. It's much more difficult, obviously, to, to manipulate sales. But the con of this would be it doesn't really take into account at all or it doesn't take into account at all whether a company's profitable. And, you know, in the age of technology, we're in the, the difference between the haves and the have nots from a profitability standpoint is, is very wide. And so these high margin, really profitable companies trying to evaluate them on price to sales relative to a low margin, you know, not profitable company that that may not be a fair comparison. So I, I think that's the biggest drawback of price to sales. 
the Fisher model uses it and O'Shaughnessy's value composite and his cornerstone growth. Um, and I think it's, yeah, growth investor model um, uses this as well. And O'Shaughnessy's original uh, what works on Wall Street, he actually favored price to sales as the main valuation metric. But as we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, that's kind of been overtaken by another one that tends to be superior, I think, over time. Uh, moving on now to more cash flow based measures, um, price to cash flow, or some investors actually even um, use price to free cash flow, which is a more stringent me measure than just cash flow. This is um, coming from the cash flow statement. And um, yeah, it has, certainly has some strengths and weaknesses. Um, if you just want to kind of go through those real quickly. Yeah, so this is probably intuitively, this is probably the most obvious one because if we, if we say the present, the value of a company is the present value of all its future cash flows, well, then price to cash flow would make maybe the most sense in terms of valuing companies because what we care about as the owner of a business is what, is what cash will it be able to generate in the future. So in a lot of ways, this is the most intuitive and that's the pro of it, but it's the most intuitive for that reason. Um, in terms of the negatives, we, we talked about how earnings can be manipulated, but earnings can also be better than cash flows in some situations because sometimes you receive cash, but that the reason you receive that cash should be allocated over multiple periods or it's not something that's going to recur. Or, you know, so there's reasons the accounting rules are the way they are with earnings. And so sometimes cash flow is not as good of an indication as earnings um, of the value of a company. Yeah, and I think as we get into these, you're getting a little bit more complex too, to some extent. So it's, it kind of adds a level of complexity, I think, to the ratio, um, which could, you know, for some investors, maybe make it a little hard to, to back into or try to figure it out. Uh, the Buffett model uses price to cash flow, as does Lynch and Dremen's contrarian investor model, which uses price to cash flow as one of the valuation metrics. Um, and lastly, before we wrap up here, um, uh, there's enterprise value to EBITDA, which enterprise value is trying to basically get at what the company would be worth if a private buyer came in and tried to buy it given its capital structure. So you have to take debt and the cash on hand into consideration when calculating the enterprise value. And then EBITDA is just, you know, basically operating earnings. So it's trying to use in the denominator, it's trying to use, um, you know, adjusted earnings when you add back in interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So it kind of gives you a view of when all those one-time charges kind of before they come out of earnings, you're kind of putting them back in to get like an operating um, earnings number. And this this has kind of emerged, I think, as one of the more popular measures used with uh, some firms. Um, and in O'Shaughnessy's book, in his latest edition of What Works on Wall Street, I think he showed that this valuation metric was the best long-term performing metric um, when stacked up against all the other ones when he tested it and identifying the companies with the lowest enterprise value to EBITDA multiple because he tested these back to, I think, 1956. And so he showed that this one was the best. But in terms of strengths and weaknesses, Jack, I'll let you just kind of go on this if, if you have any. Yeah, so basically what you said is the strength, which is this looks at a company the way an acquirer would look at the company. So if I if I buy a company, I have to pay, you know, I, have to, I buy the equity, I have to pay off the debt and what I'll get back is the cash. And so this looks at enterprise value, looks at that. And then operating earnings, you know, again, are subject to maybe less manipulation. You know, that, that's really the earnings from the core operation of the business. They're subject to less manipulation than core, you know, than regular earnings. Um, so those would be the pros. And in terms of the 
the cons, um, you know, depreciation obviously is added back here. And depreciation is, it's a non-cash expense, but it can be a legitimate expense. You know, some of these companies that have high assets, you know, also have high depreciation. And so not considering that at all, you know, this ratio may tend to favor these asset heavy, heavy companies because that true depreciation cost is not being taken into account. So it may favor those over the asset light companies. We wanted to wrap up with talking about sort of a composite approach to combining all these, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But I just wanted to kind of point out one, one other thing and it got me thinking when thinking about enterprise value EBITDA. So you can have some of our models actually have thresholds. So for example, you know, a company can't have a PE of over 20 uh, because a model would consider that to be, you know, a high PE and therefore expensive. So a model might fail all stocks that have PEs over 20, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't favor those stocks or it fails that specific criteria. But then there's other models where you have a ranking. So with enterprise value to EBITDA, you know, in the acquires multiple model that we run, we basically rank all companies by this value metric. And then the one to 2% tile stocks that are, that are basically have the lowest metrics are the ones that are considered for the model. So there's different methods and ways that you can utilize these metrics. It's not always just like a, a level. It can also be used as a rank in terms of percentile or deciles or so I just, you know, wanted to point that out as a yeah, and that, that's really important as we get into talking about composites because you can't really use, you know, a PE of 15 might be good, but a price to cash flow of a different number might be good. So you can't really, when you're creating a composite, you can't really average these different metrics together. And so the way you do a composite is basically what you're talking about, which is this whole ranking approach, which is when, when we create a composite of all these value factors, what we do is we take each individual factor, we rank every single company in our database using that factor, and then we combine those rankings. And so effectively the cheapest stocks using our composite end up being the stocks with the, low, the lowest or highest, depending on how you look at it, ranking averaged across all the individual metrics. So that, that ranking thing you talked about, that's the way when you're going to create a value composite, that's the way to do it. And remember what we sort of talked about where these metrics are sourced from. So with the composite you get with price to book balance sheet. With price to sales and PE, you get the income statement. With price to cash flow, you get the cash flow statement. With enterprise value to EBITDA, again, you're pulling in the income statement. So that's one of the things, and by the way, I'm not, this isn't original, my original thinking. This is something that Jim O'Shaughnessy also sort of wrote about and talked about with one of the benefits of a value composite. The other thing is, you know, these, these metrics kind of go through, they're cyclical as well. So they go through periods of really good performance and they kind of fall off. And, and so by having a composite of metrics, you know, you're kind of removing the risk of a certain type of valuation metrics just really falling out of favor for one reason or another. And you're sort of taking a more balanced approach with a composite. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because there's there's sort of the simple explanation for the composite, which is the one I always use when I talk about it, and it's the one you just use, which is all these you know these metrics are going to be in and out of favor at different times. If I use all of them, well, I'm going to have a I'm probably going to have the similar return, but I'm going to have a smoother you know ride along the way. But we had Wes Gray in the podcast, and he really explained you know because Wes is somebody who uses one metric, EV to EBITDA, and he really explained how what's going on behind the scenes with the composite may not be what you actually think is going on, and, and the reason is because some. A metric like price to book has significant negative quality embedded inside of it. Um, and so when, when you buy a stocks just with price to book, you're getting negative quality. And so when you build a composite, 
using other factors with price to book, what you're doing is you're getting rid of that negative quality. You know, you're adding positive quality to the, comp to the portfolio through the composite. And so if, if you use one of the metrics like EBITDA, EBITDA, which doesn't have that problem, which if you use the metrics that get at earnings quality, things like EBITDA, EBITDA, price to cash flow, you may not need a composite. And, and that, that was what Wes was saying, basically, is you're not, when you're, may, maybe the benefit you're getting of a composite is not coming from where you think it's coming from. It's not coming from, you know, blending all these factors because they're going to be in and out of favor at different times. It's coming because you're getting rid of that negative quality associated with price to book. One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to what works on Wall Street and I'll actually I'll put in Excel like the per performance of these different metrics. So we'll stick that in the podcast so you guys have a source and reference and a table that you can look at to see what the performance of these various value metrics are. But I think where we wanted to sort of end it was, you know, in the danger of evaluating metrics really based on short term data, you can't, you know, use just a few years of a metric falling out of favor and make the conclusion that that metric doesn't work anymore. I know, Jack, this is something that you've uh, referenced a couple times with some of Corey Hofstein's research and work, um, but that's really sort of maybe the final takeaway is, you know, don't just look at, you know, a short-term amount of data. We need maybe decades of data before we can determine whether a value metric like price to book actually doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you can't even use a decade because like Corey showed in his work, I mean, the, the amount of time you need to say with statistical significance that one of these factors is dead is probably longer than any of our investing lifetimes. And so you just have to be careful about taking the factor that struggled in the past decade. And price to book has all kinds of issues, so I'm not defending price to book. But you have to be careful about taking the factor that struggled in the past decade and deciding that's the worst factor and the other ones are better. Because let me give you a potential scenario that could happen. In the next decade, price to book could be the best performing of all the value factors. And, and then what, what are people going to say? That doesn't mean, you know, the, the conclusion from price to book being the best performing value factor in the next decade would not be price to book is back or price to book is the best factor. It would be that there's a lot of noise in this data. And so when we're judging these factors, we have to use the merits of them individually and not, you know, the, the period that they've out or underperformed because you could run into a trap then of, of taking a, you know, a good factor or a bad factor and drawing the wrong conclusion, you know, based on something like a decade worth of data. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. Well, I think that's a good way to kind of wrap it up. Um, I will put a link to my article in the show notes, um, along with any other resources that might be interesting that I can think of. And thank you guys for watching. We will see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.